you, 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 you give us a hard time for being white and being American and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln, okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. It's our God, Jesus Christ, has turned the tables on you. Amen. Victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. I bet he can't wait to go home and be, become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Well, here we are, 2021. Is it all you expected? Is it all you ever wanted? <laughs> How y'all doing, folks out there in podcast land? It's, of course, as always, your boy, Dan White Hodge here, the um, host of Profane Faith, what you're listening to. Um, so hopefully you had a good Christmas. Uh, last week we took off just to, you know, celebrate the time and day and all that good stuff. Um and uh, actually, today, um, now that I'm, I'm recording this here on January 3rd in the year of our Lord, 2021, um, to our knowledge, we still don't have uh, spaceships that fly in the air on an anti-gravity device, and there are no colonies on Mars that we know of, that we know of. But uh, that could, you know, that could, uh, that could soon change, right? <laughs> At any rate, um, today's my birthday. I am a glorious... 47 years old that is um i don't i don't tell my age to, 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 to too many people uh just my good friends like y'all um who are listening and um i yeah I, i'm always just a trip i i still remember a time right when i was a youngster uh when you know 18 19 and i'm thinking man people in their 40s are like old really old and you know, they don't have any understanding of real life. And man, I tell you, it's it's been a trip. It's hard to believe 20 years ago, um, you know, uh, I married my partner, Emily. In fact, this this year in uh, November, we'll celebrate our 20th uh, anniversary uh, of being married. Again, difficult to believe because I'm just like, and not that, oh, you know, where we've had such a hard time and we were on the verge of divorce or whatever, but it's just like, just the time flies um, for so long, and I don't know if any of you can relate, you know, it felt like school, you know, K through 12 lasted forever. <laughs> and it, it, you know, it felt like it was never going to end. And I'm, you know, and I've shared this before on the show, you're like, you know, but I, by the time I got to high school, I didn't really think I was going to make it to 18. So, you know, just kind of live life to the fullest. And, you know, um, that's going to be that. And lo and behold, 1992 came and I was 18 and here we are 47 and it's hard to believe that next year um I'll be uh it'll, I'll be 30 years out of high school um again mile markers and I don't know where you're listening to this at or what you're listening to this on but uh they're just mile markers mile markers there we go um and it's difficult to 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 just wrap my head around some of those you know mile markers sometimes because you know, time, time keeps on ticking, right? 
into the future right oh name that tune oh man that it's it's a trip it's just a trip and you know i'm thankful uh emily and mahalia they went down like my gift list the wish list and uh, got me some pretty cool stuff uh i'm i just feel very fortunate very blessed it's a it's a great day it's a great day usually it's a very depressing day but the last couple of years i've really tried to work really hard on allowing folks to love me and allowing folks to give me gifts i've always struggled with people who do good things for me uh because then i feel indebted to them and i want to do something in return like almost immediately um because you know part of it is i don't feel worthy enough part of it is i don't feel like i am you know that that i'm that i deserve this and that now they've given me this now i have to go back and and do something for them so you know i've worked really hard to try and undo that and allow folks to just love on me and that i know that sounds simple to some folks but it's it can be very difficult uh in other senses of the word so uh, yeah, so it's good. It's good to celebrate. It's good to, uh, you know, allow folks who do love and care for me to do that. Uh, another family friend of ours, Chase, gave us uh, or gave me a, a T-shirt uh, as well that says, um, oh, I should have brought it down here. Um, basically, it has a kind of the scientific thing of the organic manner will we'll soon be hitting the the uh, circular fan basically you know the shit's gonna hit the fan right uh but it's set in kind of this uh you know very scientific way so it's a very cool shirt and they remembered a brother's husky so they got the 3x large or long 3x long so you know always love t-shirts that actually fit right my, my i hate the i hate t-shirts that hug too much around my waist uh i don't care so much about my arms as much as in my waist or they get hiked up so that when I, you know, bend over to tie a shoe or whatever, my butt crack is showing. Um, so, yeah. Also, I know I'm getting older because, man, New Year's came. Hopefully you had a good New Year's and you social distance. I'm hearing a lot of folks, a lot of niggas going out, man, and doing shit. So hopefully you stayed away from crowds uh, and wore masks in whatever you're doing. And, uh, yeah, because, man, that shit is crazy. Um but yeah, it, it, yeah, I um, on New Year's, you know, people were going off. Our neighborhood sounds like a war zone with uh, freaking fireworks, man. And I was like, man, people, y'all, shut up, man. <laughs> y'all too damn loud. Fireworks just too damn loud. Plus, they were scaring my dogs, and you know, the they were all tripping out. The cats were tripping out. I'm like, come on, man. So, uh, next thing you know, I'm gonna be telling people to get off my yard, <laughs> right? Oh, y'all. Well, here we are, 2021. It's the first episode uh season five in the year of 2021 so we'll see i don't really have high hopes for 2021 i mean we're still in a hoop of mess um you know covid vaccines are 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 going out uh very slowly and uh which is which is interesting because i think one of the things that the covid also reveals is that our healthcare system is really broke uh it 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 really just doesn't work it it works great at making money but in terms of taking care of people, it wasn't COVID that, that created this mess. That was our healthcare system. And those of you who have had to deal firsthand with the healthcare system already know all too well, right? Um, Pre-existing conditions, uh, deductibles, uh, you know, being referred out, but it taking five and six months to get to an actual specialist, right? Um, that will take you and that will, you know, actually see you for the problems that you have. And so, our healthcare system is jacked. It is messed up. So part of it is, is trying to figure out, you know, 
how to you know get these vaccines out and then of course you got a group of other people who say i'm not going to take the vaccine right i live in a I, 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 last i checked out I, I live in a free country right the, the free country folks um you know so it covid didn't create this this mess it enhanced and it's revealed to us just how broken this system is and how much it is run on money how much it's run um on capitalism right it's run on the forms of it's run on a form of your worth is 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 tied up in what you can do what you can pay you know and those who have a lot of money right are able to you know get access to that people who have a big platform or a big name are able to get quick access and and you know adequate access to uh good health care um and you know i i would say i've got you know medium uh okay health care coverage um and uh you know but even so right um you know calling our primary care doctor it's like you know they even say oh we're not you know really not seeing people we'll just diagnose you over the phone and you know with covid and everything and i'm just like well, wait what if i i genuinely need to what if i genuinely need to get in and see the doctor <laughs> um so I don't know. And that's another thing, right, that comes up with age, right? And especially as men, you know, getting your prostate checked and all that. I know that's coming up and I need to do that. Um, and, you know, I, I do. I think about it. It's like, man, what if what if I need some long term health care plan? And the reality of it is, is that it eventually it will happen. It's not if it's when, um, you know, you get older and stuff just starts to fall apart. Right. Um, you know, and. Those are all things that, you know, as you get older, you start to think about. I wasn't thinking about this in my 20s. I wasn't thinking about this really a lot in my 30s. But as boy, late 30s, early 40s, I started like, wait a minute, man, I'm OK. All right. My back just right, it just hurts and it just stays hurting. Right. You know, little pains. It's like, you know, when I go and work around the house, it's like, I, you know, I, I stay next to Advil. Right. So all those little things and it, it gets, just gets me to think about, you know, where we're at with our health care um, and in health care as a holistic thing, not just Western medicine where we prescribe things away um, and give you a pill to cover up, you know, whatever is going on, like genuine health care. I struggle with that. Um, and I know there are a thousand different thousand and one different ways out there to think about health care and to think about how. Um, you know, you eat, eating right, eating clean. Um, but even that, right, even in the organic food, uh, you know, of, uh, movement, you know, you still got disparities. And so I don't know, man, those are the things that I think about. Um, you know, we as a family try to eat as healthy as we can. We try to eat a lot of home cooked meals, um, you know, so we can control. But even in that, right, it's like, you know, what what kind of home cooked meals are you making? Um, and how are you making it? What are you processing them with and stuff? Because, you know, that has a lot of effect on your health as well. So one of these days I'll have to do a show on health, like, you know, genuine, like eating uh, diet and health. So I'll, I'll, I'll work on that. I'll work on it. I got to put that together. And same thing. If you got questions, uh, you know, thoughts and stuff like that, I will, you know, we'll wrestle with them on the air. So thank you. For those who have submitted things and uh, have put stuff out there, appreciate that. Um, I've taken too long because this week we're making up for last week, and I have on my good friend, J.R. Foresteros. Uh, you've heard him before. He's been on this show before. If this is your first time uh, and you're like, man, who's J.R.? Well, you're about to get a treat with this man here. He is uh, he's a great thinker. He's well-read. Uh, I've appreciated his perspective, and you know, I hit him up 
few weeks back and I was like, man, it's time to get you back on the show, bro. Um, he's like, absolutely. And he's just one of those persons I can just call anytime. Um, and, you know, he's just there. And so um, if you're curious about other episodes he's been in, I will put all those links, of course, as always, in the show notes, whiteoutpodcast.com. And just go click on Profane Faith. It'll pull up the latest episode right there on that page. And you can click there's show notes right below and have all the links to JR's website, to um, uh, other episodes that he's been on. Because, you know, he has a great book, um, Sympathy for the Devil, uh, which is a great read. Um, and just, you know, just interpretation of scripture. Uh, I still give it to this man. He is out in Dallas and he's pastoring. Um, and I really give it to him for what he is trying to do and trying to, to navigate. And this conversation is deep. So you may have to break this down into two parts because I get it. It's just long. He and I can talk on a lot of different things. Um, and I wanted to get him back and that's just what we did. So, you know, he's a blogger, he's a pastor. Um, you know, he's, he's got a great story. He, uh, he writes, but he also does film reviews. He tends to see, uh, God in a lot of different areas rather than just being consumed with four walls of the church. Um, his, uh, his partner does uh, roller derby, which is amazing. Um, he has, a, of course, he has a BA in religious studies, uh, MA in religious studies as well, New Testament and early Christianity. You'll, you'll hear that. Uh, his areas of specialties are preaching and teaching. If you've never heard this guy uh, preach again, check out the links in the show notes. Uh, theology, biblical studies, pop culture, uh, he and I have had a, another podcast uh, on the American Gods series, television series, although this year the, the new season is kind of booty and whack, but that's for another discussion. Um, but uh, Oh My Wednesday is another podcast that he, uh, myself, and also uh, Kate, Kate Sanchez, who's been on the show multiple times as well. We all talk about all things related to pop culture and that I'll put the links in the show notes as well. Film and TV criticism. You follow him on Instagram. He cr critiques movies and gets into their storylines and their messages. Literature and, of course, church history. Yo, um, that's not even, you know, doing him justice. But you about to hear some great words. And this is just I just had a fun time recording this conversation with Brother JR. So happy new year. Happy birthday to me. Thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, I will see you on the coming weeks. I'm excited to bring you all some new guests uh, coming up here in the next few weeks. And, um, you know, continue on these conversations that uh, curate this uh, this podcast here on the air. So first time listening, thank you. Rate and like us, uh, iTunes, uh, over on Stitcher or really wherever you find your podcast. And if you have questions, hit me up, Profane Faith at whitehodgepodcast.com. Here you all go, y'all. JR and I, check it. Anyways, oh man. Well, JR, welcome back to Profane Faith. You are like a founding member of, of this podcast. It is always, I always love when you ask me to be on the show. It's my favorite. Oh man. Well, I, I love what you do and always being so well read, brother. I, I come to you for all things religion and Christianity. Help, help, help ground me in this sense and of this time that we find ourselves in. Um, 
It's interesting because, right, I mean, you know, we got a, we had an election. Um, first of all, I mean, for the audience, I mean, how are you holding up in these COVID times? You're a pastor. You're in Dallas. What's what's happening on your end? Let's start there. Yeah. So I don't know if I don't know if your listeners all saw, but the White House actually told Texas we needed to do a better job of COVID prevention, which. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Yeah, I missed that. That's how bad we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. When the White House tells the yeah. state. Oh, when wow. they're like, hey, you guys might want to try to keep this virus in, in, in check. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, wow. Texas is real bad. Our governor is extremely anti-science and doing that doing that thing where he pretends to be pro-small business, but all of his policies right. actually hurt small businesses. <laughs> so, right. Um, yeah, and, and I live in Dallas County. I live actually right in the edge of Dallas County. Okay. Uh, our, our, our city is like... 75% in Dallas County and 25% in the next outlying county. Okay. Uh, so Dallas County, uh, as of the week we're recording, the previous week was our worst week of COVID cases yet. Oh. And a, a number of our hospitals are actually out of beds. Like the, ah. the sort of the worst case scenario is Man. happening. Um, a number of my friends that are in the healthcare field are, you know, doing the 20 hour work days and stuff like that. I mean, you know, no, not enough nurses and doctors. Oh. And, and uh, so it's all of that stuff that you've heard about, like it's all happening here in Dallas. Oh, uh, dude. So our congregation has been virtual since March. Okay. Uh, which is, you know, we, we had, we had uh, an online, like we've always streamed our online, uh, online, our worship gatherings. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was primarily a stopgap. So if you were out of town for vacation for the weekend, you could still tune in. Uh, we found a number of folks would would worship with us online before they visited us in person. They wanted to kind of see what, you know, how do people dress? What's the yeah. preaching like? How long does it, you know? So it was, it was always a supplemental thing and now it's become the the main thing. So we spent, you know, I have an, I have an incredible worship director who actually, Dan, you will love once, once we all get to do things like hang out in person. Again. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, sometime. <laughs> Uh, he he worked with our congregation to get everything upgraded so that our oh, wow. worship experience was you know better online since wow. that's all we had. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's you know as everyone feels, we've all been Zoom fatigued. Uh, I've right. noticed that uh, fewer and fewer people tune in live, uh, even though you know when they do, like we people are. It's fun because when I'm preaching now, uh, <laughs> people are in the live chat, like interacting with the sermon in a way that, you know, you're not allowed to talk at church. So the, right. this is their way of talking in church. So there, there, there definitely are some cool side benefits. Yeah. Um, but certainly like our congregation is feeling that like weight of not being able to meet together. Uh, and, you know, I know a lot of people personally, like my grandmother has COVID, our housemate's father has it, and he's in the ICU with it. Um, a number of people like my age, my peers are contracting it and having, you know, some of them have basically gotten a stuffy nose where others have are in the hospital. You know, it's just kind of all over the place. Right, so, right. It's uh, I don't know. It's I'm I feel like I'm probably about like everyone else where I I'm glad there's a vaccine on the horizon. I know it's still going to be probably middle of next year before it's really widely available. Um, so we're just trying to kind of hang in there and take things one day at a time. Well, and I and I was and I was wondering, I mean, because you're right. I mean, with churches and pastors, I mean, I know it's a lot different. I will say to the effect that people in the chat, I will say that that was one benefit that I loved in teaching because I felt like students were able to interact with me and post things and interact with me in a certain way. As one student put it to me, he was like, y'all are now on my turf. Like, this is like, this is home, this is home turf for me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? 
And so I was like, oh, interesting. So I will say that, you know, um, particularly the course that I taught this last fall on on hip hop and theology, I felt like it was really robust in the comment mm. section. Like students took charge in a way that I did not see coming. Them posting links, them being like, hey, what about this? And hey, I heard about that. And it was a really interactive way. So that was that was a benefit that I'm trying to figure out when we do go back to in person, how can I incorporate that? again if you and you know what i'm saying so i, I don't know yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm having the same thought right like yeah is there a way to well and i think another thing that's happened during covid that was un unanticipated is we now have a number of regular worshipers who do not live like anywhere close to dallas you wow. know people who are all over the country nice. uh, who have become regular contributing members of the congregation oh, wow. and they're again in the live chat and stuff uh, in fact one one woman uh is a navajo woman she's a uh, part of my denomination mm -hmm. and as ordained and just you know her church was not meeting because of covid so she started worshiping with us like back in march and i we actually were able because of covid to invite her to preach so she recorded her <sighs> sermon and sent it to us and so she preached for us wow. back in october and See? again we were like Facebook friends, but I mean, how many people are you Facebook friends that you don't really know? <laughs> right. right. Like right. less nowadays, but still. Yes. <laughs> um, so it was really, it, it has been really uh, enriching for me personally and for our congregation to get to know people like her and get yeah. to worship with them. Um, and yeah, trying to think about like, how do we not lose that as we transition back to something that's more embodied yeah. uh, is a really interesting question. Yeah. Well, and like I said, I'd be interested, you know, to see what, what you come up with. Cause like I said, you, you, and I've said this before, I'm like, man, you've, you've been an inspiration, just you, the use of technology with theology and the way you do it, um, is, is renowned. And I'll just, I'll just say that. And I have appreciated the way you incorporate these things. The fact that you have the website set up and like, I follow, I subscribe to your sermons on, on, on iTunes and whatnot. So it's like those things pop up and I'm just like, see, this is, this is, so you already, I felt like you were already kind of in some ways better prepared for something like this would you say or what is it was you yeah oh yeah i mean certainly when when code first hit and everything went into lockdown i was watching a number of my friends who are pastors like scrambling and they you know they were like like balancing their phone on a music stand and then trying to record themselves yeah and again we were already we were already live streaming our gatherings yes so yes yes or a number of our folks, we had like a three week cushion where they were like, well, okay, this just sort of feels like I was sick this week and staying home and watching church or I was on vacation and we, you know, whatever. But of course, as the pandemic wore on and as it became clearer and clearer that this was not going to be a one month or two month yes. lockdown. Yes. Uh, you know, people started to chase because it's not the same thing. You know, I yeah. think, I think that this this pandemic has underscored how embodied we are and how how much we were created for embodied connections. Yes. You know? Yes. Again, at Zoom, Google Meets, all of these things are like <laughs> good stop gaps. They're oh, better yeah. than nothing, but they're not better. Right. Right. No, I'm so, with you. I'm with you on that. And that that's in that in and in, in me as an extrovert, and I'm not even on the extrovert scale that some people are that they owe it. I'm just I just know I, I love groups and gatherings and talking with people, shooting the shit with somebody. And it oh, bro, it is it's been it's, you know, it's to the point that, you know, it's like I want to talk with the cashier at the at the 
at, at Aldi or at you yes. know one of the grocery stores. You know, I'm just like, oh man. So of course, you know, Emily, she loves this because she's an introvert and she's just like, <laughs> yes, you know, this this is perfect. Um, how how would you say, man, with with this whole pandemic? How would you say? Because you, you know, this year as a lot of people are calling it is, you know, one of the worst years that we had. I mean, it's interesting to see how we characterize different years, right? It's hard to believe that Kobe Bryant died in this year. And, um, you know, it's like that at the beginning of the year in January, I know we almost had a war or something like that. We had taken out one of the, you know, then there was that big explosion. Was it Tehran or, or where was that? Where, oh yeah. I think in Tehran. Yeah. yeah. It was, and people thought it was nuclear and all. How would you say, man, you have fared as a pastor, um, in your congregation and just you personally, man, like, you know, how has all this stuff come together for you? And I, and I ask you specifically because I know you've got so much inside of you just from an expositor's position. So I'm, I'm asking you theologically, spiritually, faith wise. Yeah. So, uh, I'm also an extrovert and, uh, um, I would say that so so I actually started the year with knee surgery. Oh. <laughs> I I had my I tore my ACL last year. Ugh. And so I had Yikes. I literally January 16th was my surgery. Okay. And I got cleared to like be off my crutches, get back on my motorcycle, like you know, be free to go back to the gym and all of that, like a right. week before lockdown. Okay. <laughs> so okay. I had literally spent January and February on my back recovering from knee surgery. And then as soon as I'm able to be like up and about and around, they're like, everyone has to stay home. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> no. <laughs> oh man. Uh, That's whack. So yeah, I, I, you know, I would say for the last couple of years, um, I have been learning in my own spirit how to be present. Okay. Uh, I am, I'm an Enneagram three, oh. which means I'm an achiever. I'm a doer. I'm a performer. I'm a producer. Okay. And all of that is geared around making myself feel valuable to another person. Okay. All right. You know, as a, as a three, um, kind of the, the deep lie that I believe about myself is that I am not, I am not fundamentally worthy of love and friendship and affection. Right, hmm. that I have to do things to earn that from other people. Okay. Uh, which is kryptonite as a pastor. I think it's also a reason that so many pastors are threes because we can constantly be doing, helping, achieving, you know, performing, doing a good sermon, uh, giving people sage spiritual advice, all that kind of stuff. And then people talk about how much they love their pastor because of how smart he is or how wise he is <laughs> or, or all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um. So what I've been learning uh, before the pandemic, but certainly the pandemic has really like shined a, a, a hard spotlight on it, has been that my value as a human and my value as a person called to pastor a church does not come from how much I am able to do. Hmm. Uh, and so I'll give you I'll give you an example. Like it has always been very difficult for me to be to pastor people who are grieving death or terminal illness. Okay. Okay. Because there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I can't fix it. So because there's nothing I can do to make things better as a three, my natural tendency is to just like avoid, hide, ignore, move mm. away. Okay. Okay. Um, 
and again, it's one of those things where like intellectually, I know that that's not the right way to do, but when I get into those moments, I freeze up, you know? Um, And so again, for the past several years, I've been working on what it means that it's okay to just be, I don't have to, my job as a pastor is not actually to fix everyone's problems. Yeah. Uh, which again, that's not only messaging that I received from my own internal threeness. That's also, I think, an American Christian evangelical, like pastors are like uh, producers, you know, like people come to church to get their problems fixed. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. Uh, things are going well at work. My marriage is falling apart, like blah, 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 whatever. So I come to church and Jesus makes those things better, which is not <laughs> what church is for. <laughs> but I think that's what we think church is for. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've been learning to be able to just be present when when I have a person in my congregation who is having marital problems uh, and they come to me, I don't have to I don't have to prepare for their arrival by coming up with a list of ways to fix their marriage. I can just be present with them and grieve with them and offer friendship to them. And that is maybe even better than a list of tasks for them to go complete, uh, a la the love dare and fireproof. <laughs> Yeah. Um, So take that into the pandemic. Yeah. And again, like there's, I can't do anything about this, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I think you saw right when the pandemic happened, a bunch of pastors hopping on Facebook and doing a bunch of videos about like, you know, reading this, you know, reading scripture or doing, you know, doing different things to like continue to produce. Yeah. And, and I had that same impulse because it's like, oh, I need to show that I'm still doing stuff. I need to show that I'm still pastoring, even though I can't be with my people. Yes. And part of what I had to learn was like, no, it, this is just bad and it's going to be bad and there's no way to not make it bad. And so I need to be okay with the fact that it's just going to be hard. And um, I can meet my folks in that in my preaching moments without having to say like, here's 10 easy steps to peace during the pandemic or something like that. I can just, you know, continue to um, beat the drum of God's faithfulness and God's presence among us and God's call to us to continue to work for justice. And, and that's okay. Like it's okay to not be okay, you know, and that's been very difficult for me, but it's been where I've been growing Hmm. throughout, throughout this time. Wow. That's deep, man. I like that. I love, again, that's why, that's why I asked, man. Cause it's like, I love that self-insight, you know, especially, and that's what I've found I've loved about the Enneagram that, you know, it gives you some of the, it gives you the good and the bad and the ugly, right. Of, you know, the number and what, you know, an unhealthy, I'm a four. So what an unhealthy four is very similar because my wing is three. And so that combination of wanting to be unique and special and like you said, still trying to solve people's things, it can definitely, um, play out i mean i know one of the i think it was i don't know uh what i mean i don't know how long it was into the pandemic but i I remember just it was a you know just feeling that sense of depression and hopelessness so i was like all right i gotta get back you know to seeing a therapist and whatnot um and of course this year has been you know just ravaged with politics and and, uh You know, and what's happening? Because I know, you know, Democrats thought, oh, we'll take Texas when I was just like, mm, yeah, you ain't going to get gonna... close. Yeah, it was. It was close. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so so I will say okay. um, over the last several years, some friends and I down here, uh, mostly here in Texas, but not okay. exclusively. We have some folks in Colorado and some other places, too, have been doing this book book club where we are working, we've been reading books on race written by people of color. 
Right. So try and instead of just reading White Fragility, which I've heard is a wonderful book, yeah. uh, but written by a white person and mainly about how white people react to race. <laughs> let's, let's actually talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, we we sort of came to the conclusion a little over a year ago that that the best space for us to lean into some activism was in voting rights. OK, because. Everything else honestly felt very paternalistic to me. It was like, how can the white saviors write in and fix things for uh, people of color, you know? And hmm. for for us, advocating for voting rights was, well, look, like, people of color are more than capable of deciding what they need, what's good for them, what would be helpful. What's been happening since the founding of our country is a systematic uh, denial of voting rights to people of color, denying people of color the ability to make those decisions by denying them the ballot box. So maybe as white people, the best place we can be allies in our activism is by trying to do whatever we can to, you know, make sure that everyone has the same right to advocate for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was that was kind of where we started doing our investigation it was like, OK, well, what you know, what do, what do voting rights look like in Texas? And, you know, shockingly, since 2013, since the Supreme Court decision, right, uh, Shelby right. versus Holder County, yeah, which stripped away the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Yes. Texas has become sort of the poster state for voter suppression again. Um, yes. Yeah, I, so keep going. Yeah, talk about can you talk about that too. But yes, please, please keep going. Well, yeah. So we, I mean, we again, we didn't learn any of this ourselves. We partnered with groups like March to the Polls, which is based here in Dallas. We partnered with the Texas Civil Rights Project. Yeah, yeah. Um, several places like that, and um, you know, we were on some calls with like national calls where we were just kind of like sitting and learning, and they would be like blah 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 this, blah 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 this. Well, you know, Texas, and everyone would be like, uh, Texas. You know, it's like it's like the worst state. You know. Um, so it's, you know, it's things, it's, it's really, it's stuff that on its surface seems really subtle. Like, uh, they will only have one, uh, one DMV open in a county. Right. And you're like, well, what does that even have to do with voting? Rights? Right. Well, right. Because to get an ID mm -hmm. to be able to cast a ballot, you have to have uh, a you have to have an ID. And some of these counties in Texas are enormous. And so people would literally have a hundred and twenty mile one way commute to Ooh. get to their DMV. And so now you're again, you're talking about largely folks who are working class who work, you know, like nine to five jobs and they don't get vacation days, right? So right. If they take a day off to make a 250 mile round trip drive to get their ID. They're having to take an entire day off work, lose that day of pay. And if these folks are at or near the poverty line, which a lot of folks in rural Texas working class are, yeah. they just, they simply can't afford to do that. And so um, it's, wow. it's, and so then they can't vote, right? Right, um, right. And and so it's, and then when you look at the statistics, uh, for instance, Texas led the nation in closing polling places. Uh, oh, wow. Between 2013 and 2020. Uh, we closed over 750 polling places oh my in gosh. our state. And more than 500 of them were in counties that were majority non-white. Well, <laughs> okay, See? So again, you're... You're closing polling places, You're right? Which right. means there are fewer places to vote, which means longer lines, which means it's less convenient. You know things like that. Um, so, 
and this this is actually something that was kind of cool about 2020. So we all signed up to be poll workers, right? Because we're like, okay, so we're gonna uh, yeah. we're gonna educate ourselves on voting rights, and then we're gonna put ourselves in the polls so we can be advocates and we can be allies, whatever. So uh, first of all, only two of our group actually got to be able to work the polls because Texas had so many people sign up to work the polls that they actually had way too many poll workers, which was actually a great problem. You know, um, it shows it shows a lot of energy and enthusiasm around voting, which was awesome. Okay. Uh, so I and uh, another one of my friends, uh, Moxie, uh, we didn't get, we signed up, we did all the training, we got certified to work the polls, and then they just didn't assign us anything. So come voting day, uh, we basically went, we went to Costco, we got bottles of water and like granola bars, and we're like, okay, we're going to drive around and find these long lines that and just like hand out. Awesome. But there uh-huh. are no lines. Okay. Because so okay. many people voted. Like, I think like 80% of the ballots cast in Dallas County were cast in early voting. Whoa. Um, 80% in. Da- wow. Yeah. And, and again, we actually had way, we had a higher voter turnout than we had even in 2018 or 2016. So it's not like fewer people voted. It was just like, there was so much enthusiasm around voting that more people went to vote. So, I mean, we literally drove around all day, just like hanging out, shooting the breeze, like, you know, (laughs) looking for places. Um, We did find one uh, spot we, cause you know, I like Moxie's driving. I'm like scrolling Twitter with, you know, a couple of different hashtags, like looking, do we see any evidence of voter suppression or voter intimidation or things like that? Yeah. We did find one spot where no one was wearing masks in the polling place. And it was a, it was a, a GOP controlled run polling place. <laughs> and, and they were doing it so that anyone who was wearing a mask would feel like it was not safe to go in and vote. Um, they also had people driving up and down the street outside the polling place and big trucks with Trump flags and people yelling at the, like we experienced that as we were walking in to check things out. They were yelling like pro-Trump slogans or anti-Democrat slogans. Um, there wow. were also people, Trump signs, like standing illegally close to the polling places, you know, like, so uh, several different forms of voter uh, suppression. Right. So we contacted, um, you know, the, the different places, there's different like hotlines. You call the Texas secretary of state, different places like that to, you know, get them on to investigate that. Um, <laughs> but ultimately the Texas GOP party refused to do anything about it. They were just like, Oh I'll, yeah, I was going to ask be doing that. Yeah, So, right. So a lot of it came down to like educating ourselves about the voting process and learning how to participate in it, which has made, you know, all of the ridiculousness surrounding the quote unquote voter fraud that's non-existent ridiculous because anyone who's complaining about it, like clearly has not educated themselves about the process, right? Like exactly. they just don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, but, but again, I wouldn't have known. I would have just been like, I don't think there's voter fraud, but like, whatever. Now, like having been inside of the machine, right? Uh-huh. Like now it's, it's clear, like, no, no, no. If you knew anything about anything, you would know that this is not a thing. <laughs> uh, right. And, and our, our mutual friend, Kathy Kong, you know, yeah. she served as an election judge in yeah. this election. Yeah, that's right. actually had to be part of the counting, the votes and all that kind of stuff. So yes. um, she has even more insight than I do about like the, that, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, well, yeah. I see, and that's the thing that I love. Cause I remember you texted me or something on, election day or something you were like you were you were do you were telling me about that and and these are the things the intricacies right about that and particularly that decision in 2013 that that affects so much of how we vote i mean when you think about it i mean think 120 this is just one example right 120 mile one way first of all you got to have a car that can make it or some kind of vehicle that can get there 
Um, and I knew a lot of people, especially in rural Texas, that just didn't have a vehicle that could go that far. I mean, I know that was us, right? Like when we had to go to the airport, we lived in Menard, Texas, and we had to go to San Antonio, which was around that same mileage, 120, 140 miles out to, to San Antonio. We would have to borrow a friend's car or have them drive us out there, which means now we got to link up schedules. We got to pay for gas. I mean, all those things, right? So, I mean, just that alone. And I mean, I think you're explaining and breaking down. I mean, again, the machine that is voting rights and all those little things that you don't consider somebody driving around in a large truck, right? I'm sure revving and it's loud and yelling. That's that's that can that can take you that can be jarring right it doesn't intimidate me as a large bearded tattooed white man of course but yeah uh it, i lots of other people uh definitely could intimidate you know right so <laughs> oh man oh, and and again i mean i'm glad you shared that because i think that's part of what i mean i would imagine most of my listener base gets it um but it, it, it's it's part of what makes this whole thing about you know voter suppression and i mean this brings up another topic and i'm trying to pull up an article um from the atlantic i don't know you might have written it uh read it already um this year i i took on a subscription to the atlantic and so i've been reading a lot more of their articles and it was by graham wood um it came out in december uh this year and it says the next decade could be even worse and they interview a historian Oh, what is his name? Um, he is it's a Russian. He's a Russian historian. He is looking at, oh, where's his name? Good night. Um, uh, Connecticut, where he teaches human beings. Peter Turchin. You heard his name? He's a historian. No, I have not. Okay. It's interesting. I've just started reading some of his stuff. He's an interesting bloke. He, uh, his large research platform, he was looking at the last 10,000 years um, of history, of civilizations. Um, and he's been looking at, you know, just, you know, going through the data and looking at, okay, what makes a civilization rise? What makes a civilization falls? Um, and of course, he said, you know, he's been warning for a decade that a few key social and political trends uh, pretend an age of discord, civil unrest, and carnage worse than most Americans have experienced. In 2010, he predicted that the unrest would get serious around 2020 and that it wouldn't let up until those social and political trends were reversed. Havoc at the level of the late 1960s and early 70s is the base, best case scenario. All-out civil war is the worst. Um, so he talks about, um, let's see, uh, I'm trying to pull up. I should have had my notes better, but, uh, you know, we're, we're working through it here. We're freewheeling, right? We don't know where we're going to live. That's right, right. Well, because you brought it up. I mean, you brought up about, you know, kind of this, like, where we're here. And I bring him up for several reasons because he says, okay, in the United States, he says you can see more aspirants fighting for a single job at, say, a prestigious law for, firm or in an influ influential government uh, since uh, position, or here it got personal at a national magazine. Perhaps seeing the holes in my T-shirt, Turchin noted that a person can be part of an ideological elite rather than an economic one. He doesn't view himself as a member of either. A professor 
reaches a, uh, at most a few hundred students, he told me. You reach thousands, hundreds of thousands. So he talks about this elitism that, uh, that exists, not just economically, but educationally, right? So he says those are some of the, that's one of the first warning signs. He talks about Trump in the way that, you know, he says, for example, he says he may appear elite, rich father, Wharton degree, gilded. He said, but Trumpism is counter elite movement. He said his government is packed with credentialed nobodies who were shut out of previous administrations, sometimes for good reasons. And sometimes because the Groton Yale establishment didn't simply have any vacancies. So he talks about kind of this 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 sense of we're going to take back what we what what was lost. Almost, I don't know, I'm sure you've seen the Joker. Almost like a, a a sense of these rich elite are taking our our lives away. This is what I think I resonated so much with the Joker because there was a sense of working class is getting taken. Now, of course, there's some racialized stuff in there, and he points towards the fact that we have some disruptions. And that just because Biden was elected, we still have some major contentions to deal with. Climate change, a growing, uh, a vastly growing differential between the elite who are financially well off and those who are not, you know, rising costs. I think I commented that on a few weeks ago on the show about how, you know, I mean, even like for us, we have po um, uh, not polls, but um, tolls. There we go. We have tollways. Everything's yeah. going up January 1st. Right. Um I think Even Netflix and Disney Plus are raising their prices this month. Exactly. Exactly, man. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> like, even the gloves that I buy, like I buy some disposable gloves when I do concrete work, and those went from like $7 a box to now dang near 30 bucks a box. And I'm like, whoa. Yeah. 28 something 99 with tax and everything in it. Because, you know, Illinois tax is over 10%. So anything you buy is 10% tax. So he talks about that. Um, and you know, it, you know, it, it, they go through that people were, you know, kind of dismissing him until he started talking about 2020 and about how some of these things, uh, start to come to a head. The pandemic, of course, um, you know, rushed a lot of these things and, and but, but he also talks about the loss and sense of fact and truth, um, as a sense of things that we can go to, like, let's just agree that the sun is X amount of miles away. It's burning at this temperature. And, you know, that, but we've lost that because now you've got people who say, well, the sun isn't even real and we have a flatter earth. And, you know, and so how do you make sense of this? I say all that to say, you, as someone who's read a lot of stuff, theologian, a pastor, how do you make sense of, not even the next decade, let's just say the next five years? Yeah, uh, this is this is actually right where I've been sort of wringing my hands and scratching my head a lot. So I don't know if I have any answers, but uh, I have some fun right. questions, I think, you know, Good. one, I do think that at least like I have been um, saddened. I don't know that I could say shocked, but I've definitely been saddened by the number of evangelicals who are buying into conspiracy theories. OK, yes. Um QAnon, yeah, all, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, uh, voter fraud. I mean, right, all this stuff that's just—it's not grounded in any kind of reality. Even like a passing amount of research will illustrate that it's not actually happening. You know, um, but 
you know, I was raised in a church that celebrated six day creationism and they brought in quote unquote experts who told me that everyone in my public high school was lying to me and that, you know, the truth could only be found in these specialized secret places in the church, you know? Um, so, so we have in, in a lot of strands of evangelicalism, I think particularly white evangelicalism, which is practically all that evangelicalism means anymore. Um, we have, we have told ourselves a narrative that says, uh, we are doing something that is countercultural and the world is going to hate us. And that hate is proof that we're doing the right thing. Yes. Yeah. We've told ourselves that for so long that now that the church, the evangelical church, finds itself in opposition to the vast majority of the culture, it's only reinforcing our narrative. Yeah. You know. Um and and where I've where I've really been despairing is that, you know, when when my little group first started our book club and first started educating ourselves, mm-hmm. um, you know, not all of us are people of faith. You know, it's about about 50-50. Nice. But um, we all care about racial justice and, yeah. and figuring out our part in it, you know. Um, and so we learned a lot. I learned so much that I had like, we, over and over and over, probably the first year of the book club, every month that we met, we uh, the refrain was like, wow, we didn't learn that in history class. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, yeah. Learning all, the, all these new, all these facts that were new to us. They weren't new facts, right? They were mm-hmm. things that had been around. The receipts were there. If anyone wanted to go looking for them, we just never had, right? Yeah. And so um, then I would get into these engagements with folks who were not in the same spaces that those of us in the book club were, where they were not, uh, heartbroken by racial violence in the country. They were not in a space where they were ready to be open to the possibility that whiteness was somehow contributing to or even leading this charge. And they were not open to the possibility that whiteness was forming them in some sort of ways that were uh, counter to justice and hope and peace and good goodwill. And so I thought, well, here we've got, I've got all these facts now, right? It's not just, it's not just us making like, uh, un, unba- or, you know, baseless assertions back and forth. Like I can, I can produce the receipts, right? Right. And so I started doing that. I, was, I said, okay, so, hey, I hear what you're saying, but here are, here are seven facts that illustrate that you're wrong. Um, can we continue, you know, can we move this conversation forward? Right. right. Uh, and I would even, I would, you know, I understand that's how I used to think too. And here are the things that changed my mind only to be met with like, not only a dismissal of those facts, but a doubling down on their baseless assertions. Hmm. And, you know, I spent a couple of years beating my head against that wall and getting more and more disillusioned, angry. Um, and I, th- I think it showed in my social media engagement, you know, I was getting less and less, uh, charitable towards those folks because, uh, I was learning what people of color had learned a long time ago, which is that whiteness is an ideology. It has a script and the folks who are reading off of the script are not thinking they're just reading off the script, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And so, uh, it got to the point where I had to take a step back and say, okay, so this is not a rational conversation. This is an ideological disagreement. Um, and ideology is 
by definition, it's like pre-rational, right? It's like the lenses that go over our eyes mm-hmm. through which we see facts. And so if I have a if I have a particular ideological commitment, then I um, decide what these things mean based on what I already have chosen to think. Um, so it doesn't matter how it doesn't matter how much you how much information you give me about pr- police brutality or crime statistics or any of that kind of stuff. Like black on black crime is a worse problem than white on black crime, you know. And it doesn't like that 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 conviction is fact proof because it's an ideological commitment that whiteness cannot be a problem because I'm white and I'm not a problem. Yeah, you know. Um, so, so I, where I'm stuck right now and where I say stuck, like, I think this is just the place that I'm, the question I'm trying to answer next yeah. is, uh, what does ideological conversion look like? You know, and, and I use that Ooh. word conversion because I do think yeah. that we're, I, th- I do think that we're back to a place that is much more like evangelism than argument. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I am I am at a place where I think what evangelicalism needs is a conversion away from w- the ideology of whiteness. Um, I, are you uh, I ass- uh, are you friends with or is um, I think his name is I, I've got to hang on I'm just going to look him up before I say his name incorrectly. Yeah, no. Uh, da, 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 da. I shared his quote yesterday on Facebook. It's been something that I've been kind of hanging out with and I'm trying to, here it is. Okay. Um, are you friends with Jonathan Walton? Oh. He wrote the book, 12 Lies That Hold America Captive. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Okay. I've heard about that book. I have unfortunately not read it, but I have heard about it. So he he posed this question on Facebook, or it's a statement and I, I reshared it. He said, I must always ask myself this question. How has colonization and the creation of white American folk religion corrupted Christ and obscured me from seeing Jesus? Mm. Ooh, read that one more again, brother. Okay. (laughs) I must always ask myself, how has colonization Uh and the creation of white American folk religion corrupted Christ and obscured me from seeing Jesus? Wow. Wow. Uh, so that's that's where I say I think evangelicalism is is at a place where it needs to be converted. That's what I mean, right? I think I okay. think the evangelicalism has become so enraptured with the white American folk religion that we are not following the Jesus of the of the scriptures. And this is not a Calvinism versus Armenianism debate. Right. This is not like an egalitarianism versus complementarianism debate. This is not a which flavor of Methodist are you debate. This is a we are we are following an idol. We are we are giving ourselves over to a false religion. Yeah. And we need to be converted to the to Jesus's good news. Um, and so that's where I'm kind of I'm that's where I'm kind of stuck. Right. I'm kind of asking myself like how what is this uh, what is this. <laughs> what is this new crusade? I shouldn't use crusade. What does this new evangelistic <laughs> effort look like? You know? Yeah. I, that's a good point. That's a good point. I mean, I, an ideological conversion to I me mean, and, and, and I would be wholeheartedly uh, on board with that. I could, I could see that kind of conversion. It's interesting because this is, as you were talking, I was looking at, so Turkin talks about this. He says, historians of religion have long pondered the relationship between the rise of complex civilization and the belief in gods, especially moralizing gods, the kind who scold you for sinning 
Last year, Turkin and a dozen co-authors mined the database records from 14, 414 societies that span, again, this is the 10,000 years, from 30 regions around the world using 51 measures of social complexity and four measures of supernatural enforcement of morality. To answer the question conclusively, they found that complex societies are more likely to have moralizing gods, but the gods tend to start their scolding after the societies get complex, not as before. Which is interesting. There is a, <laughs> I love Rick and Morty. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's it's. I actually found that whole cartoon series by accident. Uh, I was actually going between the Simpsons and the and the uh, Family Guy on my DVR, and they just happened to be on, and I've just been hooked ever since. And there's an episode yes. in the new season where Rick, you know, has sex with the planet, and he thinks that you know that those <laughs> kids. <laughs> That the planet is having are his uh when in fact they're zeus right it's like zeus yeah. shows up and is like pissed of this technological advancement but likes jerry because jerry's real simplistic and he <laughs> right. and he endows him right with all of his powers and everything right so they can overthrow and he even talks has some old testament like like feel my presence and breath and yes. there's like i love that episode but it's uh, ta it talks about this stuff, and it's just it's interesting, right? When you start thinking about where does God fit in a technolo technological society, right? That sees AI, it's that's you know getting smarter and smarter every day. One of my good friends, um, who I had on my other podcast, uh, you gonna learn today, uh, talking about machine learning. He works for the government, and so he works as nice. looking at how the brain can communicate with basically his premise is, is helping vets who have lost limbs communicate with the robot of the new limb. And so that they can better become a, you know, but that involves right. Artificial intelligence. Where do you see that, man? I mean, again, in, in, in the technology, I mean, cause you talked about it, you were like, you know, this conversion, if, if I'm, cause I would say ideology is probably the most difficult thing to change within anybody. I can change a new behavior. I can go to YouTube and learn a new trade. Um, I can take a class and learn some some new skills. I, if I work hard enough, I can become licensed and fill in the blank. But ideology, whoo, that's at the core, right, of who we are, what I believe, my faith has and what changed me, because I think about like my own, I was sold that as a Seventh-day Adventist, like Saturday is the only day to worship. This is the way the world's going to end. I don't believe any other version of the Bible except King James Version. That's it. And it wasn't until I was ousted of my community, excommunicated, right? Marrying the wrong person, blah, blah, blah. You know the story. <laughs> that it was until then that I was able to really begin to formulate. But even within that, if I think philosophically, I feel like I still had to suspend these thoughts and entertain these new ones now. Cause I could have easily gone back and been like, whoo, y'all were right, man. It's crazy out there in that world. Let me come back into the, the, the fold. How do you make sense of all of that? I mean, how are you pondering some of that? And maybe that's just too far out there, man. I, I don't know. No, I, no, 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 no. Um, well, well, one, I think, <laughs> one, I think we could argue that in, to a large degree, we are already a lot further along the transhumanist 
spectrum than we want to admit because hmm. of our smartphones. Ooh. You know, um, we now, I mean, it, the jokes are made on sitcoms. I remember a gag on How I Met Your Mother about it, and that was probably, uh, I don't even want to admit it, but probably a decade <laughs> ago now, right? Right. Um, about how how uh, arguments among friends would happen before smartphones. And someone would say, oh, uh, who was the actor in that movie? And then everyone would sit around about arguing about who it was. And now, you know, they fast fast forwarded to the, the far distant future of 2009. And, you know, <laughs> and someone said that and everyone immediately just got their phones out and looked it up. You know, we, we have access to so much more information at our fingertips than any previous generation could have dreamed of. You know, if I want to know what's going on in Tehran right now, I can. I can just get get on Twitter, search the hashtag, and get a window into life over there. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, you know, answer just about any question I want at my fingertips. Uh, and so, what's come from that is, I think uh, we are now having to develop the ability to not find information, but sift information. You know, I, one of the things I love, like one of my favorite insights, and I don't remember when I, where I first came across it. So if you're listening, please call me and take credit for it and I'll start crediting <laughs> you. Um, but you know, you and I are of the age that when we went to school, we had library days where they took right. us to the library right. and taught us how to use yes. the card cabinet. Yes. Right? I, taught us how yeah. to use microfish. That's right. That's because information when we were growing up was not widely available. It was in these repositories called libraries. And if you wanted to learn something, you had to go and then you had to learn how to use the tools of the library to acquire the information you wanted to find. Yeah. Um, the benefit of that was that information that was housed in a library had all passed through an editor. Um, now, there were there were downsides to that. You know, we can talk about all, all kinds of gatekeeping and white whiteness and privilege that, that did that, but you couldn't, you know, they didn't just keep people's personal journals in the library. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't walk down the diary aisle and find what <laughs> Gina thought about who cares what, you know, and um, yeah. everything, everything was curated. Yeah. You know, everything. Yes. Yes. Uh, it was either a newspaper or a magazine or encyclopedia or, or a book that came from a publishing house. There was no self-publishing in our age. Right. Um, right. Now, fast forward, literally, I mean, literally, I was a senior in high school when uh, the first two kids in my school got email addresses, you know, so like literally they could email each other and that was it. <laughs> it wasn't like, yeah. people like, you have an email, like, what do you do with it? Well, like, nothing really, because no one else has it. Yes. Um, so, so now the problem is there is now more information at our fingertips than ever. And as you and I both know, as people who put things on the internet, we can just do it. We don't have to get it curated or ask for permission. <laughs> like we could, you know, right. Um, if, yeah. if we wanted to host our own flat earth podcast, we could, and no one would stop us. And it'd probably be the number one flat earth podcast because we're so darn entertaining. Um, That's right. That's right. We could be number one on Apple, Apple podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> but all of that to say, now the issue is not, learning the skills to find the information it's learning the skills to sift the information there it is and you and i were not taught those skills growing up certainly our parents and the older you know gen x uh the boomers the 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 generations before them were not taught that mm. and so you have these websites that look like legitimate news sites but they're basically just conspiracy theory blogs they just have a good graphic designer on their team so they look like cnn or fox news or whatever yeah and you know my grandma goes to it 
it and sees it and is like, well, it says it on this very professional looking news site. And all of her, all of her cultural training has been to accept news from sources that look like this as trustworthy. That's what Walter Cronkite and Dan Rather and Tom Brokaw yes. looked like. Yes. Uh, and so she takes it as truth because she was not of a generation that had to worry about whether what was coming from places that looked like this was trustworthy. Um, I think our children's generation, you know, Gen Z and the ones below them are going to be a lot more savvy at this because they've had to grow up in a world with 500 different opinions uh, at their fingertips all the time. But th this is certainly a case where the technology has sped ahead of the ethics mm -hmm. uh, in a way that I think no one predicted. So that was a long road to get back around to your transhumanism question. But I, but I think that's only going to accelerate as we have AI, machine learning, all of these kinds of things. Uh, as as the search engines and the virtual assistants get better and better and better yeah you know if 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 my if my google assistant 10 years from now decides that it knows what i want to see in the morning in terms of data am i just going <laughs> to trust it because it pops up in front of my eyes when i wake up right uh you know who who's curating the curator right um yeah so I think those are some of the important questions we need to be thinking about moving forward because they'll have real possibility of further some, I mean, we've seen how the algorithms on a lot of our social media, like Facebook are like deepening the divide, not lessening yes. the divide, right? Yes. They tend to push us into our ideological rabbit holes, not draw us together. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I don't, I don't know that we're prepared for that. That's, I mean, that's a curious question. I mean, I think, and this is kind of the way conversations always go, right? As a qualitative researcher, right? I look at the timer and I'm like, of course, we're, you know, 50, 45, 50 minutes in. And it's like, this is when the conversation starts to get, you know, really meaty. Because um, I'd be curious. And I know you got stuff to do and, and, and everything. I don't want to hold you. But I'm at the same time, I'm so curious. How do you navigate some of these things? Right? Because right now, I mean, as at least as we're recording this, um, I mean, how many states sued um, Facebook and, and its proprietary? 17, I think. 14 or 17. Uh, yeah. Yeah, right. And I think even Trevor Noah was saying, it's like, man, when you can get California and Mississippi to agree on something, it's like, you know, you know, you done messed up, man. So I'd be curious, man. I mean, because this is I, I, I created a new course um, in 2017 as a result of the 2016 election. Um, it's gone through a couple of different names, but the new name is Social Media Friends and Family. And it's a looking at from a communications perspective, how we interpret information, how we digest it, how we maneuver it. Um, and ultimately, what does that mean for family and friendships? Um, on the far end question, I want to ask, will we arrive at a Star Trekian position where we can kind of look at religion and be like, ah, that's cool. That's that's good. Nice folklore. But we have technology in front of us. We're traveling the planets. We know enough now that God doesn't exist. Um, uh, even though there's narratives of that throughout, and especially the next generation and their stories are amazing. And and there's it's nuanced throughout. But that's not the premise. Right. You don't see Christian churches popping up in the in the enterprise and you know, the chapel service. So. Will we arrive at that? And then ultimately in 20, well, we're moving into 2021. I mean, what does social media do for us and, and against us? Um, yeah, I don't know. Let me, let me yeah, go um, with that. You know, I think we always have a bias towards what we know 
and we look at the way we do church right now, maybe, maybe we're actually in a better position because of the pandemic than we think. Because before the pandemic, we were like, well, of course we do church this way. Like, how else could we do church? But you literally go back 500 years, which is not that long. It's, right, it's right. Uh, go, go back as far into the past as next generation is in the future, right? Go 400 years back. And you have the vast majority of, of churchgoers were illiterate. Uh, everyone received uh, teaching or everyone said mass in Latin, you know, uh, and and religion was largely an embodied performative experience. Mm-hmm. It was not something that you believed in your head and your heart. It was a it was a communal experience that you did together. Uh, it was sacramental, uh, which is very much not the way the majority of American Christians understand. You know what what religion is. So, uh, and that's that's just within our own faith tradition. If you look at other religions around the world. And again, go back and look at how they functioned, you know, look at Hinduism and track, track the way Hinduism looks around the world and throughout time. Um, things like that. I think, uh, it's nearly impossible for us to imagine 400 years into the future or further into the future and say, here's what it's going to look like. Uh, and I think, I think we see the limits of that in Star Trek where, you know, the, the, the most seriously, that Star Trek has tried to grapple with religion was probably Deep Space Nine with the Bajorans and the prophets that turn out to be these nonlinear wormhole aliens and blah, 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 blah. Okay, you know, I, I'm with that. I don't think we're going to say, oh, God is just a really powerful alien that we found, you know, and he <laughs> lives in a black hole somewhere. Um, <laughs> but I do think even the way we understand who God is is going to continue to change because how we understand who God is has continued to change. Go back to... <laughs> go back to Abraham, right? Yeah. And, and trace, trace yeah. how we understand who God is up through the canon. Um, how we talk about what the incarnation means, how we, how we talk about what resurrection means, you know, these, these things that we consider to be core ideas that I consider to be core ideas, what they mean and how we understand them has continued to change and to evolve uh, as our world has continued to change and to evolve. And so I don't think we'll ever get to a place where we'll say, oh, like we have enough science now that we don't need God. Cause I'm not one of those people that thinks that like God and science are in opposition. Oh know? yeah. Oh yeah. Um, yeah of course. You of don't course. either. Uh, but, 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 you know, again, I know that that was kind of the promise of atheism for a while. Um, yeah. I, 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 but I also have no idea what it's going to look like, you know? Yeah. What, what, um, for instance, I don't know if you saw that Amazon show. Uh, now I'm going to say the wrong show. It was the one where they could upload their consciousnesses into a, it's not upload. Maybe it is upload. Anyway, it, uh, it had Robbie, uh, Amel hmm. as the main character. Anyway, the whole premise of it was like, they can scan your consciousness and then upload it into a digital afterlife. Interesting. And so, I, this sounds like something off black mirror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much. It was. It was. Uh, a lot of people said it was a cross between Black Mirror and The Good Place. Okay. Um, okay. Pr- pretty fun show, but you know what happens if once that becomes a reality mm-hmm. and and we don't speak about death as a thing anymore? We maybe talk about the death of our bodies, but we all live quasi eternally in a server farms somewhere. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that. I think that's a really interesting question. And again, one of the things that that show, 
warns us about is to not let corporations run that because then everything is commodified and uh <laughs> right of course if you want the upgraded experience in the that's, in the super that's exactly right there's there's a bellhop in the hotel who who is a taco bell icon who keeps offering people chalupas and it's all digital you know but you got to pay for it uh, First right free and then you um, gotta pay for it, man. Or if you want more space, you want more, more the that's elite exactly space. It. Yeah, oh, yeah, gosh. yeah. So, I don't. I think those are interesting questions, and I think, uh, you know, again, I think it's a false dichotomy to say, well, we should just be anti-technology, or we should be because, as I like to point out, forks are technology, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Like, yes, they're an old technology. But yes. they're technology. Yes. Like we've, we, and, and I don't know anyone, I don't meet any Christian who says they're anti-technology who eats with their hands exclusively, you know, um, who doesn't work on a stove or live in a house. Like, this is all technology. Unless you know? it's barbecue, man. It's barbecue the ribs. Well, again, there are times that that is just what, what is done. Um, but, oh, yeah, you know, man. like that's uh, – and, and I think, too, you can, you know, you can choose to, to – you can do, choose to do something like the Amish where you just sort of draw a line in the sand and say, we'll accept technological progress to this point and no further. Uh, and that's fine. We may, you know, we may, let's fast forward 50 years where we have these, you know, consciousness uploads available. There may be a religious group that says we believe the death of the body is is God's will for when life ends and we choose to do that. There may be lawsuits when a kid wants to be uploaded, but their parents don't want to let them for religious reasons. And we have like a Jehovah's witness blood transfusion kind of a thing. You know, I can imagine all that kind of stuff, Yeah, but they're going to be minorities eventually. Right. Like that's, that's just how these things work. Like this is the, this is the, like the tide of progress, so to speak, technological advancement, um, whether it's progress or not, we can argue, but it's certainly technological advancement. Um, and I think I think rather than being anti, uh, okay, a good example, uh, 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 a real life example. There was a news article I think last year mm -hmm. of a pastor who performed an online baptism of an avatar. Interesting. Of I missed that one. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So of course, in 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 all of my pastor groups, people were like, "This is ridiculous. Obviously, not a real baptism." Blah 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 blah. Like on 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 on. And I was like. Uh, yeah, y'all are going to look real foolish in 50 years when this is like a norm, you know? Um, <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it seems very silly now because most adults don't have online avatars. Well, we do. We just don't realize that our social media presences are avatars, right? Yeah. But most of us don't play Second Life or The Sims or, or something <laughs> like that where we have, where we right. have an online avatar. Um but I think as as we continue to move more and more online and we have more and more of this, and, and so for me as a pastor, I would say instead of mocking this, uh, I would ask the question, why, why, what is, what is the movement of God in this person's life such that they wanted to respond to Jesus's good news in this way, you know, hmm. um, and again, I don't know. I, the article, I don't recall any of the spe specific details, but I thought it was actually kind of a cool new space to experiment with stuff. Yeah. You know, and uh, I don't know. Like, I think if we're if we're moving away from magical thinking and thinking that the water has the water imparts the physical water imparts some sort of transformational property upon the person, uh, something like a magical elixir. Right. Then, then what is what is the actual difference between physical water and digital water? You know, um, 
again, my Sacramento friends will be stringing me up for this, but. Uh, <laughs> oh, an important question. Abs- no, absolutely, and that's why I was. That's why I wanted to ask you. I mean, because it's it's something that I mean. I am not throwing, obviously, right? We're looking at each other through virtual screens right now, and I'm recording onto material that is, you know, we're not, I'm not, I don't record a tape. I use a plug-in for tape. And, and you know, that's changed so much over the last even 10 years. You know, when I first got into podcasting, I mean, I had to get a brand new education. So I'm not throwing away technology. I guess, I think that's why I like Black Mirror and shows like that. It's like it, it gets us to, to ask the, the questions, what are the ethics and morals behind some of these things? And then ultimately, you know, what what does that mean as somebody who still wants to keep a faith in all of this? I think about my retirement age, which is around, I don't know, I was just doing my TIA craft the other day, and I think it's it was 2044 or 2045, and I, I think about that. Um, oh, thanks. I just uh, and I'll put this link. Jr. just sent me a link in the chat. I'm going to put this in the show notes as well on this baptism, um, uh, futurism, baptized anime, virtual reality. Um, I forgot what I was saying. <laughs> You're talking <laughs> just, about your own retirement. Oh, yeah, my own retirement day. So I'm just I, I think about that when I'm 66, 67. Will we have discovered, you know, life on other planets? What will that mean for theology? Will we have colonized the moon in that sense, right? There's already talk about that. I know Bezos is, not Bezos, but uh, uh, is it Bezos or was it, um, what's his his name? Tesla guy. Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk who wants to, you know, go to Mars by 2025. Like, you know, we're, so I'm... Yeah, I ask those questions and 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 I'm curious. So I appreciate, you know, you kind of, walking down that road with me um these have been great conversations jr thank you for just uh, amusing me and, and coming back on the show can i uh, can i poke your brain for a minute or you gotta go no i'm i'm done grading bro i, I <laughs> i'm good man so so this i i i am uh I'm I'm genuinely curious for you as a man of color okay. who has been in evangelicalism, who has felt betrayed by evangelicalism, who is moving out of evangelicalism. Um, you know, I'm looking. <laughs> so I'm looking at everything we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. whiteness and evangelicalism. It's sort of like my mess to clean up, right? Like I'm white, <laughs> I'm an evangelical pastor. <laughs> like these are my folks, my mess. Like I, you know, I got to work on that. Like. Wh- where do you do you see a future for evangelicalism? Do you care? Are you just like goodbye, good riddance? Like what? Um, with 2016 and 2020 on its way out, like where are you as far as you know? When you look at someone like me, uh, who's who's you know, people keep asking if I'm done with evangelicalism. I'm like, look. I pastor a denomination that's like squarely evangelical. So like, I just don't feel like it's honest for me to say I'm not an evangelical, you know? So I'm not asking you to like pat me on the back or for any kind of affirmation. I think I'm genuinely curious, like for you as a black man in America, like, would you, are you just, are you, are are you just at a place where you're like, well, the sooner they're, the sooner they're dead and gone, the better, or do you have any kind of, (laughs) 
hope? Do you care? You know, I, I don't know. I'm like, I'm just kind of, I'm curious about your perspective on all of this kind of stuff. I appreciate that. No, that's great. I'm glad. Thank you for uh, for asking that. This is good. It's a good, genuine conversation. It's what you can do, right? When you've been on the show so much. Like I said, you're a contributing partner here. That's great. Um, I, well, I would say this. I know I've said on this show, I've talked a lot about evangelicalism. I think in one sense, I think there has to be a sense. And I think, and I'll answer the, the broader question. Do I care? Well, yeah. I mean, I keep talking about it so much. Right? It's like almost every other episode, I'm talking about some form of evangelicalism. So obviously there's some caring to it. I think to unpack that further, um, is it dead? I think the current form of it is, 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 is on the way out. I mean, I think white conservative evangelicalism for me, I don't see any, real hope in that right i don't see any real um especially with where we're at and, and and like a lot of this stuff people don't know they think oh man trump trump's just an easy hat holder he is a, he is he's a hat holder and what he's connected to is much broader the wall that he is connected to is much broader and this stuff has been building for years um and like you said it's like i went to the same church service that said the world is evil. We are the only ones who have the truth. I mean, that that type of stuff and, and conspiracy stuff, that type of stuff's been around for a long time. I mean, yes, social media has made it readily available and um, and he's propagated it. But, you know, Trump is is, is a hat holder. Um, yeah, he's problematic personally, but he's just emphasizing, you know, what you know, whatever will keep him in office. Right. Um, but do I have hope? I don't know. I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I think parts of it do need to die off and just and just and just go their way. Um, I'm encouraged by folks. You know, I mean, my good friend, you know, Lisa Sharon Harper, you know, who talks a lot about being a person of color. And, you know, she's been interviewed for numerous magazines about, you know, the, the hope and future of, of uh, evangelicalism. I don't theologically. I don't know if I center baptism and salvation anymore as I once did 20 years ago. Absolutely. Right. Still in young life. And not, you know, absolutely. We got to get those kids saved. That's the only thing that's going to work. And for me, I just look at it so much differently now. So there's always still going to be connections, just like there's always going to still be connections to um, aspects of Adventism, right? Whether it be language or whether it be mysticism, uh, as a person of color, though, I'm 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 taken back by just the amount. When I think about all the notifications, right, that I get from Christian publishers, you know, both as an educator and just as an author, that the key theology books are still being written by white cis men. I shudder at that, and not that they're dumb, not that they're idiots, but I'm just like. Wait a minute. So I'm so I'm good enough to write a book on race, or like my brother Dominic Gilliard, he's good enough to write a book on incarceration. You know, uh, we got other people who write a good a book on hip hop and this and this and that. But the core stuff that these are all like it's still the case that these courses like that are still electives. They're not part of the core curriculum. You go to a seminary, you're going to have to take New Testament. You got to take Old Testament. You got to take something on you know, exegetical yeah, uh, systematic theology exactly yeah, but it's going to be a white systematic theology exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. and so for me i mean i i attended one of the womanist sections and so it was very 
it was it was good in, to hear from black women talking about aspects of evangelicalism. So I appreciate that. So it's like I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but at the same time, I think I would say like what I'm saying to my white allies now is just come out, don't waste your time, man. And this is even to my own wife. Like I'm just like. Yes, once upon a time, it's like, yes, it's on white folks. And I think that's still going to be the case for certain aspects and levels. But I'm like, man, let's let's go start our own thing. I, I feel like I've, I've I'm as I get older, I'm trying to figure out how do I invest my energy? How, where do I put my energy into so that I don't look up and be like, man, that was for nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was for nothing. And that's, I think, the biggest feeling I felt after 2016. I was like, this was for nothing. What? What the hell was that all about? And A, I don't want to feel like that again, but B, I want to actually invest. I'm not getting younger. I want to be able to invest what I got into something where I can feel like I'm pushing the ball forward. And I don't, I haven't landed on anything yet. I mean, I, I stay in education and I like that. And I put podcasts out. I like that. I write a little bit. I put that out there. But aside from that, I don't know if I have a great answer, you know, for that other than, Obviously, ideologies and culture, they're they're difficult to completely destroy. Um, and yeah. I don't think I see Christian evangelicalism going anywhere. I would, you know, if, you know, if, if it were to me, I'd say, let's uh, let's reevaluate. What can we you know, what can we do? I mean, this notion of how we understand God, that is central for me. How do we understand God's healing? How do we understand God's supernatural presence? And so it's difficult for me to be like somebody like George Floyd, who I know was in church and praying and and, and had people praying for him. And and we would say, well, you know, God's hand of protection is upon him. I'm just like, well, (sighs) I don't know, man. Um, yeah, I can see the larger martyrdom and, 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 and the thing, but it's just like this continues to happen. And so I'm also encouraged, though, by the ancestors who pushed for things and never saw what we are seeing today. Um, I can't imagine being black uh, even 100 years ago in 1920, let alone 200 years ago in 1820. Um, I, I, I can't imagine living in such a society where there were stark differences and 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 opinions so i don't know man i i i'm definitely on the boat of like let's let's get something new i don't know where i land on the christian spectrum i you know Mm, that's fair i don't i don't you know i don't find myself in a pentecostal sense you know i'm not episcopalian or you know so i don't know i don't i don't i don't have that anymore and i'm still trying to understand again where Jesus and God fits into, again, the, the personhood of God fits into the, the daily. I don't know if any of that yeah. makes sense. That was kind of a more it totally of a long... does. Totally does. Um, so I, I have one more thought slash question. Yeah. And if it's bad, you can feel free to just delete it out. Um, <laughs> nah. So I'm, I'm a white pastor, obviously. Uh, I have said for a long time that my church is a white church that has a number of non-white people who attend. Uh, we have been working towards becoming more truly multi-ethnic, not uh, more multi multicultural, not just multi-ethnic. Yeah. Um, our current worship director is a black man, and I uh, intentionally give him as much 
leeway as possible to do whatever style of music, not just the kind of white rock music that our church has been used to. So he's he's been <laughs> most of the new stuff that he's been incorporating has been a lot more from like black artists, black worship leaders, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but my. <clears throat> I think my fear, and it's a fear because it's something that I can't gauge personally because I'm white, because I'm the pastor for a number of reasons, right? Because I'm at the top of the totem pole, so to speak, or top of the pyramid or whatever. Um, I think what a lot of white folks need right now to come out of our whiteness is authentic, genuine engagement with non-white people. Um building empathy, being able to see the world through someone's perspective that has been marginalized, disadvantaged, abused, you know, victims of violence, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> however, I think asking people of color to be that for white people is abusive. Okay. Yeah. Um, so it, it, I am, I'm sort of in a space as a white leader in a culturally white multi-ethnic church. Yeah. Yeah. Where I feel uh, I'm afraid that I am exposed by by talking about race, by pushing for things like racial reconciliation or, uh, you know, crossing boundaries and, and, you know, having cross-cultural friendships and things like that. I'm afraid that I'm, and I say again, I'm afraid because I, I can't measure it, right? I'm afraid that I'm asking my congregants of color to open themselves to trauma. Does that make sense? Yeah, ab absolutely. I, and I don't know. Like, so I, I guess I just wanted to throw that out there because you're someone that I respect and trust who I know will tell it to me straight. So, well, I, no, I I'm, know. You <clears throat> yes. I mean, I think absolutely. There's a sense of trauma. I mean, I think, you know, the last church I was at, you know, that was, there was that sense of, well, let's bring you up when we're, you know, talking about race and that's, you know, especially being an interracial couple and then. You know, and I, you know me, I mean, I'm always down to talk at the same time, again, going back to what I just said, is it doing any good? We can all shake hands after the service and be like, oh, brother, I'm so sorry. And this, I mean, I, I don't as, and, and again, I'll speak for myself because I know oftentimes people can easily take what I say or any person of color, what they say and be like, oh, let's just apply it, you know, like toothpaste across the whole whole board. It's like, nah, hold up. I'll speak for me. I don't need the, oh man, I'm so sorry, man. It's just like, especially if I don't know you and you coming at me and, and being all hippie-ish and want to love. And I'm just like, yo, yo, just back up a little bit, back up. And, you know, I don't know you that well. Um, and I, in turn, try to return that if somebody, you know, they get somebody who's an LGBTQ fam, right? To be up there to talk about their story. I don't want to be like, oh, I'm cis hetero and I, I'm so sorry for what we've done. It's like, all right, I don't know you like that. Um, but yeah, I think there is some trauma to it. Um, as I tell folks, I said this the other day on, I forget what podcast it was on. Uh, somebody's like, you know, what do you think, you know, what are some of the things we need to do to move forward? I was like, well... The great thing is, is that there's been easily over 50 years of things that have been being written about on what needs to happen to move forward. We just need to adopt some of those, right? I mean, it's like, I love Ice Cube, but the fact that he's audacious enough to come out with this platinum plan, I, and I've been to the website, I've looked at some of the stuff, it's like, where did you come up with this? Like, have you worked with any of the people who've been working in these communities for 
35, 40 years. I mean, you know, I mean, even CCDA has aspects of that that, you know, you need to consider. So what do I think needs to happen? I mean, MLK talked about it <laughs> 60 years ago. So there are plans in place. We've just never looked at it. And when I say we, I don't, I don't mean you. I'm just saying like societally, we've never looked at it. I mean, look how long it's taken, you know, for us to get to a point where we can even talk about prison reform, right? Um, yeah. And, and incarceration, mass incarceration, right? Just using that language. Um, so there are plans in place that, that could be utilized. I think that me continuing to talk about, this is why I recorded, you know, my story on the podcast. When people say, tell me about your story. Here's the link. There you go. Right. <laughs> here's, here's the link. Go check it out. You know, um, I've provided a lot of resources online for folks, you know, as an educator. Uh, um, here are chapters of my book. I know, you know, Google Books has a few of them. Like, you can damn near get 85% of most of my stuff just off of Google Books. Mm -hmm. So go and educate yourself. Like, this is why I've appreciated about you, that you've educated yourself. You come to me with like, hey, well, you know... Kendi said this, or, you know, it's like, I, I read some stuff from Robert D'Angelo and, and they said this. And, and so it's having a genuine conversation rather than sitting at the table of people of color and being like, teach us, teach us. And I'm just like, well, <laughs> first, <laughs> yeah, if you want me to teach, I mean, and this happened the other day, uh, not the other day, but about six months ago, uh, an associate, I mean, I wouldn't even call this, you know, the person, a friend would, you know, reached out and was just like, Hey, will you come and, you know, speak at our church and this and this and that. And, you know, I'm asking questions like, well, what is, who's the church and who y'all made of? What are some of the, who, who are some of the people y'all have been reading about? You know, uh, tell me about that. Nope. No one, you know, we're just, you know, we're just a white congregation. We're just trying to learn more about this. And I'm just like, yeah, I'm not the one to come. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, I'm not the one to show up to that. Um, you know, it's like the other day, somebody invited me to come speak in their class um, about, uh, you know, um, it was a guest lecture. And they was like, you know, can you just talk about issue of racism and stuff, you know, within communication? And I was like, you know, g well, give me more. Like, and how long do you want me to speak? Oh, you know, I'll give you like 20 minutes. You know, I'm just like, so I'm like, you're going to get a 20 minute general overview and I'm going to point you to a whole bunch. Again, what have you been doing? What have you been reading? What have you, cause it's, there's no excuse at this day and point to be like, I don't know who to read. Uh, that's just none. <laughs> there really wasn't any excuse 40 years ago, but there's damn sure no excuse now with right. all the stuff that we just got through talking about. Right. It's like all the access to information. There's some good information out there. There's a lot of people who are public theologians, public speakers, who have websites, who have connections to good stuff that you can trust um, and that you can get material too. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I don't even know what your question was. <laughs> and, you know, is it, you know, is it on, I don't think it's on persons of color, but I also think the complexity of this conversation means that white allies, and I know because I'm married to one, uh, is it's it's a difficult and precarious position to be in um, because so much stuff has been done. And in this this year of reckoning, I mean, people of color, especially black and brown folks, we you know we're just we're we're done trying to help those over there better understand like people who are just coming to the table and figuring out that police brutality and violence is a thing. It's like, oh, man, like it, 
okay. But we've also been down this road before. And I'm asking myself the broader question, what's going to change? Right. What is going to move the needle forward so we don't have to keep having the same conversation about the same black bodies dying, marching, all the things that people don't like, looting and all that, right? Rioting. What has changed, though? Because uh, the rage is still there. And I give it to allies who are, who are hanging in there because it, it's not it's not an easy place to be. Um, I will say that. Um, yeah, I don't know. Does that answer your question, man? I don't even know if that. It, it, yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it does. I just, you know, I, I guess, you know, I, I'm I'm always. I'm always okay. So I'll I'll tell you what what originally triggered this. Come on, uh, probably five years ago, maybe. Mm-hmm. I assigned some homework after one of my sermons that was go have a cross cultural experience. Said even if it's literally just going to like a Vietnamese restaurant, uh, you know where where the, the run by a Vietnamese family, like mm-hmm. and eating food that you normally wouldn't eat, like just do something, some even if it's a small step out of your comfort zone to enter into someone else's space. And a black couple, uh, I, my wife and I were just hanging out with them, you know, like later that week. And she was laughing about how the small group at our church, she was like, they were discussing the sermon and asking what everyone was doing. And she said, I told them that every time I come to a small group, it's a cross-cultural experience. And I was like, whoa, yeah, like, okay, I hadn't thought about that. But right, like she is a black woman operating in a white church. And so like, she's always out of her cultural comfort zone. Uh, it's fine. Like she loves, she loves our church and loves her small group. And I mean, you know, she wasn't yeah. complaining. Yeah. She yeah. was just observing that no one even understood, including her pastor, that her small group was a cross-cultural experience for her. Right. And I was like, okay, so this is, this is the reality for folks of color in my congregation. Cause it's a white church, you know, um, that they're already, stretching themselves beyond what the white folks in my church are. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm, I've become, uh, I, I hope when I say protective, I don't sound paternalistic. I just I understand that there's an increasing yes. cost for those congregants. I'm with you. you. Know? I'm with you. And maybe it's my own bias because I, I know you and I like you, but I, I'm with you when you, when you say that. Because I think that's a great example of being that ally and having some aspect of that protection. Because Emily does the same thing, right? She does the exact same thing with our godsons, with our daughter, with me, uh, when it comes to certain things. And I don't, again, I'll speak for myself. I don't take it as a paternalistic approach. I, I look at it as how do whites use their 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 privilege in 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 certain ways and and the and having the ability to do that you know as a white man like you said bearded and tattooed you know you can command a certain presence with people that i wouldn't be able to and you know and so no i don't i don't take it as that i mean i could be corrected but i don't take it as that that i think it's yeah yeah, i think it's a good thing well i don't that's that's where I I am lately with my pastoring, with my leadership. You know, it's 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 trying to figure that out, right? What's the balance between uh, <laughs> doing my part to educate my white folks without also like you know speaking for 
black people. Like I remember one of the first conversations you and I ever had was about how you were just waiting for the day that some white person was going to write a theology of hip hop <laughs> and yep. get all the credit for the work that you've been doing for decades. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah, um, and I think about that too. Like we both know that there are just a number of people who are not going to read a book, <laughs> right? Just not going to, right? It, you know, right. And I can tell them all. I can tell them all they want. Oh, stamp from the beginning, or the the YA friendly version stamp. Like, and yes, like, eh, right. Doesn't have any pictures, and they're like, I'm not interested. You know, right. Um, so then, then it becomes the question of like, yeah, what's that tension between me? offering these ideas in spaces where they will be received and then like appropriating black work. Yeah. And you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Cause obviously one is I think helpful and one is harmful. Yeah. Well, it, it, absolutely. And I would say, I mean, and this is where the challenge comes. I mean, I think that, I don't know. I've oftentimes I feel like, okay, let's just go to Canada and let's just, let's just build something <laughs> and, and from scratch and, you know, figure it out from there. Um, but I also don't want to turn into, you know, what M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, right? You know, it's like, I don't want to, you know, just fool people into thinking there's monsters because well, I'll become the very thing, right? Like Obi-Wan said, I'll become the very thing that you swore to to uh, to overcome. Uh, I, yes, I would say it's, it, I'll say this. One of the reasons I left my last church because it, it felt like the white leadership cared more about the notion and the idea of racial equity uh, and the, the accolades that came with that than they actually cared about what that meant. Um, and for me, the proof is always in the pudding. Uh, when we're still reading, right, these things, how, how, you, know, you can't have a 12-week series on racial equity and justice and preaching, you know, hell and brimstone from the thing, but then we turn around and have this Bible study from yet another conservative white cis male evangelical on the book of Luke. <laughs> I'm like, no, I'm not. And I remember sitting there and then I was, I was pissed. And even Mahalia was looking at me like, dad, you got to say something. Yeah. You got to say something, <laughs> you know, and the, the pastor at the time didn't know how to handle that. And that's the other thing. It's like, I feel like good allies are able to handle just like, man, like the frustration that exists who you can ask Emily, man. I mean, it just, it, it comes out, man. I mean, cause it's, it is, it's rage. It is, it is frustration it is anger. And I saw then I was just giving her just a snippet of that frustration that we just spent 12 weeks on this series of race and ethnicity. And now all of a sudden you're going to turn around and we're still on the, the square one. Oh, hell no. Nah. Um, and oh, Emily, Emily standing right here being like, yeah, yeah. JR says hi. Hey, JR. <laughs> hey, JR. Um, you know, and I turn around and I'm just like, hell no. Nah. And that spooked the hell out of her enough that was just like, I'm done. I'm done. And I was like, okay, I, I, I got it. I got it. I'm out. I'm out. I'm good. I don't, you know, I don't know. And that's why, like I said, it's, it's. For me, part of it, and I'll just be honest, I'll speak for myself, I got to I gotta sniff some of the allies out. And I know that also means that other people of color are doing the same to mm -hmm. Emily. And, and I get that. Um, I don't know if that helps explain it, anything, it, man. Know, it does. I mean, I, th I think, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sure a number of other white people like myself who are aspiring allies listen to this show i sure hope we do and uh i mean i would just say that right like 
one of the metrics that I have used, and it's dangerous for a three who loves accolades, but one of the <laughs> metrics I have I used in my public facing work on race is watching who interacts with it. Yeah. If I, you know, if I, yeah. if I post something and it gets lots and lots of likes and reshares and retweets and all that, but it's all from white people, I actually take that as a bad sign. Hmm. Um, if I post something and it gets some engagement from my friends of color, I'm like, okay, this, this clearly said something that people of color found to be helpful, you know, or, or that they criti- they criticize it and that helps me, you know, helps me be better. Um, but I have to be careful, right? Because that, that is a, that is a, there's a thin line between that and like, look how many people liked my post. I must be awesome. Right. But, um, you know, early, early on when I was first trying to really engage race stuff, I posted several things that got a ton of engagement, but it was all from white people. Hmm. And one of those posts in particular, I had a black friend contact me privately and just rip me a new one for it. Oh, wow. And they, they even said, they were like, and I know you got so many people sharing this, so you just take my words for what they're worth, but, blah, you know, and I was like, yeah, like, you know, I chose to receive that and hear that. Yeah, um, that's deep. That's deep. Because, I again, I think if I'm, I don't know, like, that's just for me, I, again, as a white person trying to understand and trying to understand that my friends of color will not necessarily engage the stuff that I post because it can be too painful for them. You know, again, I've had friends of color who have said that they've unfollowed me, not because of things I say, but because of the things that white people say on my posts. Right. And they're like, I just (laughs) like, I just can't look at the white nonsense. And I'm like, I totally understand. Yeah. Right. That's why we have texting or or whatever. Yeah. Um, So I, I understand intellectually that there is a a real cost to being a person of color who is choosing to be public facing and speaking up about some of this stuff. Now, that said, I had a black female worship director uh, at my church a couple years ago. And uh, we when we were first talking about Enneagram stuff, I said uh, she had never heard of it before. She, she is a four like yourself. Okay. But when we were first talking about it, I said, I bet you're an eight. You're the challenger. You're the, because you're so outspoken and in your face about stuff. And she was like, I'm a black woman. I don't have a choice. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Like again, white boy never thought about that. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's, there's a lot that I'm learning about what my friends of color, how they navigate social, how all of you navigate these, these public facing spaces. And, I don't know. It's helping me learn how to be, I hope, a better ally and a better pastor. Because again, then trying to like navigate the public spaces of my congregation. Yeah. Uh, where yeah. I hope, again, hoping to move into a truly multicultural space, not just a white multi-ethnic space. Um, and again, in ways that are not going to be doing harm to my congregants of color, in ways that are truly going to be, uh, as the, as as Mary's song, which was the lectionary text for last week and this next week, all says, right, all right, like, tearing down the proud and raising up the humble. You know, like <laughs> giving giving whiteness, uh, taking it down a peg or two, and uplifting our brothers and sisters and siblings of color. And I, I'm curious, just how is that? I mean, with somebody who you know, like you said, ripped your new one. How how is that? impacted you 
self-esteem wise, theologically? I mean, how have you, because this is the part, and I'm asking that, and I'll just say it uh, beforehand. I, it, this is the part that I think the frustration sets in for a lot of people of color because they feel like, okay, well, here, let me uh, expound on this. Again, I'll, I'll use my own church experience with my pastor. It's like I'm expounding on something. Yes, I'm frustrated, but I'm not cursing you out. I'm just, I'm just doing it in a way that I'm just like, why? <laughs> right? Like, yep. why? Um, and I've been around long enough, so I feel like, okay, we got a relationship. Let's let's engage this way. But then it's, you know, the spooked. It, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you navigate some of that, man. And particularly when you talk about, because when I see sometimes that, you know, this, this, it, but it's still, it's still white folks holding on to certain amounts of power. It's like even at the school I teach at, right? It's like there's this sense, oh, we're a Hispanic-serving institute and we're getting that grant money and everything, and like our student body is amazingly diverse. But when it comes to faculty and staff, it's just like, woo, that the culture is still, like you said, it's still maintained and operated by whiteness, and the change. To, to do anything different is just it's it's so far beyond anybody's you know view no one wants to do anything about it and 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 there's fear around giving up that aspect of power i guess that's what i'm really asking how do you yeah. how do you navigate that well okay so i'll say first of all i have probably two high in opinion of myself. <laughs> I, I, I am not uh, struggling in the self-confidence re arena. Um, so I have, I made, uh, you know, even before my friend and I had this, conver this uh, conversation where, where they confronted me, I had made an a priori commitment to believe people of color. Okay. And, and believe, you know, believe women, believe, believe people who are not in the position of power, right? Okay. To give, and so as a white cis male pastor is treating myself and my perspective with a hermeneutic of suspicion, you know, okay. instead of starting from the baseline that of course I'm right, I'm awesome, which is my normal baseline. If I'm being totally <laughs> honest and real wife. Yeah. Um, yeah. Come on, man. Keep it real. Keep it real. Um, instead of doing that, start from the assumption, this person is probably right. Hmm. You know, so um, now, again, that helps me tremendously as a pastor in general, you know. Um, but, yeah, when when this friend called me and said, hey, we need to talk about the thing you posted, um, and then they started laying out the problems with it, my gut reaction was, of course, retrenchment and defensiveness and pointing at how many shares and likes. I mean, all of those things went through my head. Of course, but I of had, course. I had developed this uh mantra this uh this reflex that was quit giving yourself the benefit of the doubt right so it, i was able to check those impulses and bite my tongue and just hear those things and um i was able to say okay you know what i'm sorry you're right i did this was wrong what what do i what do i do you know, how do, how do I, how do I fix this? Um, and our relationship was awkward for a while after that, you know, yeah. as you can imagine. Yeah, but of course. We're, of course. In a, we're in a much better place uh, today, you know, um, and, and it's something that we have, we have gone back and talked about that. And I, I've thanked them for it. I've said, Hey, you know, like this was, this was a, this was a very important moment for me in my journey to be a better ally. Hmm. Um, and uh, so, 
I don't know. Like, I think it's, and this is what I, I say this in my sermons. I say this like anywhere, anyone will listen. I say, if we can just get to the place where we quit giving our, we being white folks, if we can just quit giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt and start instead, assume, assume, assume that I have some white supremacy and some racism that I don't Mm. see. Assume that I do. Whoa. Assume it's there. And I just don't know what's there. Wow. Um, Instead of saying like, but hey, wait a second. I was grocery shopping yesterday and I passed a black person and I didn't scream the M word. That must mean I'm not racist. <laughs> like, I mean, like, that's uh, a good thing. Yeah. That you didn't do that. But right. That's like, that ought to be like the lowest bar for racism. Right. Not like you made it. We're a post-racial society because people aren't screaming the N word in public most places. Um, wow. You know? And, yeah. And then again, so that, so then when I, when I move into a space and a person of color doesn't greet me as a white savior who has arrived, I don't go, well, what's wrong with these people? They must, they must be race baiting. I can instead say like, huh, like how is my presence here? Uh, what is my presence here doing that it's creating this kind of, this kind of conflict, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, let's start with the assumption that I'm the problem. Now, maybe I'm not right. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But let's just let me let me as the white person start with the assumption that I'm the problem, that my perspective is the problem, that my behavior, my actions are the problem. And let me work really, really hard to understand why they are. And then if I've done all that work and I've come out the other side and I, it turns out I can't I can't understand how I'm not. Well, then then maybe let's do something else. But nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, 999 times out of 1,000, <laughs> I'm probably going to figure out that, no, there was some unexamined white supremacy or racism in my own spirit or in my own assumptions, you know. Wow. I mean, again, JR, I mean, I think that's great. I mean, the, the assumption, I mean, I, I, for me, I flip it around on gender, right? I think about, yeah. you know, growing up as a hyper masculine male in a real entrenched society especially in rural texas um that you know said men go to work women stay at home um and you know anything outside of that is just suspect right um i i have to come to it like i like what you said coming like yeah there's there is some some patriarchy and some male supremacy um and some hyper masculinity that that goes into this and so um these are a lot of the conversations that i have you know with with emily you know in regards to expectations of who does what around the house and i'm not saying i get it perfect i'm just simply simply saying that those ideologies when you talked about it um an ideological conversion i mean that that is that's powerful because again it's difficult to give up and that um and i think about that even with you know folks who come at me and say oh you know i'm polyamorous or you know i'm another again an area that i'm maybe not familiar as with it's very easy for me to cast judgment and then just say well, why are you doing that? You know, saying, <laughs> um, so I appreciate that, man. I'm glad you answered that. And again, I don't take it as every white person, but I, I hopefully folks listening can grasp onto that and 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 understand that because I think that is and honestly, as again, I'll speak for myself, it's difficult sometimes. I just posted a meme the other day on on Instagram and it's somebody with a scrunched up face saying, 
you know, it's me thinking, am I going to respond with okay or am I just going to go off on this person and stuff, man? It, <laughs> it's it's how I feel about a lot of different things sometimes when I post. I posted something about like when Kamala Harris was you know, chosen and everything. And of course, you know, there was, yeah, but what about Biden? These were all white folks, right? You know, commenting on this and just shocked. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I'm like, oh, am I going to say anything? Because then I then I get into the thing. It's like, well, what's the point on social media? Because, you know, who who wants to who wants to concede on social media? Um, you know, <laughs> you're posting books and articles that you read from some website. Um, so I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank well, you. Thank you for your insights. I mean, it's again, that's why I love talking with you. I just you love the way you see things. And oh, man. You're processing with faith as well. I mean, it's 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 so it's, it's it's so enriching for me and for my ministry as well. So, well, I appreciate that, man. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to process with faith, man. That's some, some of that transhumanism is just like, ah, OK, yeah, that, that makes sense. Well, uh, and and. <laughs> Back to that, you know, I'm a technology junkie. I'm the guy that wants to have the newest gadget. So, you know, they start releasing <laughs> cybernetic eyes and stuff. I'll be first in line. Like, yep, sign me up. Like, That's I want right. to see you <laughs> Oh, man. I have always wanted cybernetic eyes, man. So I can, just for the simple reason of being able to tell people's names. I want people's names just floating <laughs> right into their, in the classroom. Yeah, Steven. So be like, what's up, Haas? Hey, right, bud. right. <laughs> just so that I can see that. And I'm like, man, if I could do that, I will get those eyes in a second, man. So I feel you on that. Yeah. Um, JR, where can folks find you, man? What are what are you working on now? What's uh this is the first time they're listening to you and your wisdom, man. What's what's happening? Well, you know, I do have a book that's been out for a couple of years called Empathy for the Devil, endorsed by one Daniel White Hodge. Yes, it's um, a great book. So uh that that's the only uh I, I did also contribute to an essay book that Jonathan Walton put together, the, oh, the nice. uh man we were talking about earlier that was about um why evangelicals should not vote for Trump. So it's it's now past the election, but you know, a bunch of a bunch of evangelical folk contributed to that essay book. Um and so I, I had an essay in that if people uh want to look at that. Um but yeah mostly I was telling you, you know, before the show during the pandemic, I've I haven't been writing much. I, I occasionally have pop culture articles over at Think Christian. So I wrote one on Ted Lasso is my most recent one going up there. I'll probably have one on the Mandalorian coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, but I've mainly been running D and D campaigns. So that's <laughs> I love it. Um, I love that's, it. That's how I've been scratching my creative itch. So I've I've uh, found a really good online platform to do that, and I'm running four or five games with folks who are kind of wow. all over the country, wow. which has been a lot of fun. So. I love it. I love it. I love it. And and for the yeah, record, I I'm, was was that? Oh, I was gonna say I'm at Jr. Foresteros anywhere, Instagram, Facebook, okay. Twitter, like anywhere you want to find me. I'm at Jr. Foresteros. I also have a podcast called The Fascinating Podcast that Dan's been on a couple times. So yes, yes, and and again, those listening, White Ox Podcast, go to Profane Faith, click on that, and you see the show notes. I will put all these links in there, as well as the other what two, three episodes that you've been on from Profane Faith, where we talked about your book Empathy for the Devil, which again I still find is an amazing. Uh, text and just looking at different ways of interpreting scripture. I remember how you broke that different stories down. I'm not going to give it away because I want people to go listen to it, but I, I appreciate the way you did that. So I'll put those links uh, in there as well. Man, brother, thank you so much. What an amazing conversation. It's wonderful. 